So um, while we were praying last week in this hall, we remember we were broken into little groups and we were praying into what God wants to do in us as a congregation. I really felt the Lord drop this word on my heart. And so um, I'm, I'm quite excited to, to see what the Lord does, not only through the word, but just in us as a people. And I felt that phrase, um, which was a prophecy about something that uh, John the Baptist would do, that feels like a phrase for us in this season, which is that phrase, prepare the way of the Lord. Just last week, even in worship, the Lord seemed to really be highlighting the fact that Jesus is coming back. And we know that theologically that's true. But sometimes in our hearts, in our spirits, we pick up this urgency in the Lord. And it felt like the Lord was doing that in me again. And um, so I wanted to just share this word to do with preparing the way of the Lord. What does that actually mean? What do what is, yeah, just kind of, I wanted to maybe just start with a few verses and compare when the early disciples encountered Jesus for the first time, what was their reaction? What did they say? What are the kinds of things that came out of their mouth when they encountered Jesus? And compare that to our own response and compare and contrast. So just take a note of the kinds of things the disciples said when they found Jesus. Maybe you can put up. Those verses in John chapter 1, first one, uh, that's the slide. There we got the scriptures. Oh, I didn't give you the scriptures. Let me read it for you. Uh, in John chapter 1, verse 40 to 41, this is uh, Andrew And Simon, when they encountered Jesus for the first time. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did, so this is the first thing Andrew did when he found Jesus. He he found his brother, Simon, and he told him this, We have found the Messiah. And then it gives a little bit of an interpretation for us uh, non-Hebrews. That is the Christ. We have found the Messiah. Just think of that phrase for a bit. It's quite an interesting phrase. I'm trying to think when I came to know the Lord, was that what sprang out of my heart? I have found the Messiah. Not really. And I'll tell you now why I think there's a discrepancy between what they said when they found Jesus and what we say when we find Jesus. Jesus. What about in verse 44? Same passage. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. So he's saying, we found the one that that, uh, Moses wrote about. We, We found him. Also not something I said when I got saved. Verse 49, so chapter 1, verse 49. This is now Nathaniel. So this is the third person we're speaking about now, eh? that found Jesus. This is what Nathaniel said. Chapter 1, verse th- uh, 49. Sorry, verse 49. Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Also not something that I said when I got saved. Um, 
So there's something going on here, and I feel like it's quite significant because even though it didn't occur to us when we got saved, it is important that it does occur to us at some point what they got a revelation of. They had a jump start on us because they had the old covenant, God's relationship, and God had spoken through the prophet and said, one day I'm going to send a king who is going to save Israel. And they had been waiting for this king for over a thousand years. David sang about the coming Messiah in his Psalms, a thousand years before Jesus turned onto the sea. So when Jesus got revealed by God to the disciples, the instinctive response was, this is the Messiah. This is, G- this is the king whom God prophesied would come. It's an interesting response, eh? When I came to Christ, and probably the same for you, the first response that came out of my heart was, I'm forgiven. My sins have been washed away. I'm saved from God's judgment. I'm no longer going to hell. And that is profound, and we mustn't ever lose sight of that revelation. But they were one step ahead of us here. They had a revelation, not only are my sins forgiven, not only is the blood of the perfect lamb washed away my sins, so I stand guiltless before God. We have found God's king. This is God's Messiah. And I want to just give you a little bit of context for us non-Hebrews what they were actually talking about. Because something that happened to them needs to happen to us. When they encountered Jesus and discovered he was the king, God's king, the Messiah, it was like, if I had to use an analogy of, like if they were walking along with their lives, going about what they were intending to do, they met Jesus, it was like a bus hit them that was going the other direction. That is how profound this encounter with Jesus changed their lives. Why? Because they had found the Messiah. This is, we've been waiting for this guy for a thousand years. This guy's just turned up on the sea. This is a historical moment. This is an earth-shattering, life-changing moment that's happened here. Whatever I was busy with, I, it's, well, that's obviously not irrelevant now. We've, we've just found the Messiah. And you kind of see that in their lives. It's like uh, when Jesus says, come follow, them, they, come follow me, they're like, well, of course I'm going to do that. I mean, you're the Messiah, Right? Uh, But there's something of that that needs to come into our heart. I want to talk about the significance of what actually happened when Jesus came. Um, And uh, there's a a prophecy that I want to have a look at in the book of Daniel. And thankfully, these are on the slides, I think. Maybe not. Pictures will be there, probably not the scriptures. So Daniel and his friends, and I always explain Bible stories now because people nod knowingly in church and then afterwards and they walk out, they're like, I have no idea who that guy was that you were talking about. I missed uh, Sunday school when I was a kid. That's not Daniel. That is uh, where we get there. Uh, so Daniel was a, a Jewish man and he had been taken into exile with, a, with much of the nation of Israel. And They had been taken into exile, but even amongst the people that were taken into exile, we can't assume that all the Israelites that went into exile in Babylon were like these devout, believing, godly people that continued to worship God. That that wasn't the case. Actually, uh, many of the people of Israel were very in a very bad place spiritually. That's why they ended up in exile. But David and his friends, as you read the story, they were very devout. They, they were very sincere in their faith. They were young men, and they continued to really want to honor God in their 
with their lives. But the problem was they were surrounded by an entire nation that was very ungodly, was a very ungodly culture. They worshipped other gods. And so I'm, I'm wanting to drill down into the story because it's basically our story. It's these, a minority of people that remain true to their convictions, true to God, in a culture that was completely different, completely uh, worshipping other idols, and a powerful kingdom. The Babylonian kingdom was the most dominant powerful kingdom in the whole world. And so you've got these few little devout Jews continuing to worship this obscure God, and, it, and they seemed foolish. And that's really a picture of us, a kingdom within a kingdom. We're this little minority of God-fearing believers in a world, in a nation, in a culture that's powerful, that's dominant, and it's different. And so there's, there's, there's something important to pick up here. So in the midst of this, David found favor with God, but he also found favor with the king. He got taken into the king's confidence. He became one of the king's advisors. And the king had a dream, a very disturbing dream. And the king had this, this distinct impression that God was trying to say something to him. And so he called all his advisors and he said, um, I want you to tell me what I dreamed. And then I want you to interpret the dream. Because he knew that anyone can give any interpretation of a dream, right? Like, I mean, if you tell me your dream, I'll give you an interpretation. But how do I know that you've given me the correct one? So as a double blind, he said, no, no, tell me the dream first and then tell me the interpretation. Well, that was a really tall order. And he said, by the way, if you can't do this, I'm going to kill you all. So when David sought the Lord in prayer as though his life depended on it, he really did in that particular moment. And so David prayed and thank you, thank you, Rashi. Daniel prayed. Do I keep, did, I keep saying, did I keep saying David? Yeah. So Daniel prayed, and the Lord revealed what the king's dream was and gave him the interpretation. And da Daniel <laughs> had a moment. Daniel had a moment where he got a, a, a revelation of, God ruling over the nations, and you can tell what the way he worships after this vision, something, the lights went on for him. And he realized, yes, we're a kingdom within a kingdom. Yes, we're a minority, but there's something a lot bigger going on here. And my hope this morning is that the same thing will happen in our hearts, that there's something way bigger going on here than just this little community of believers faithfully following Jesus, something way, way bigger. And so he has this vision, and I'll, I'll read it to you, but we can put up the, the pictures along while I read it to you. This is the vision that the king had that Daniel um, interpreted, and he said, Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became 
like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. We just read that last part. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Just before we rush on, let's just have a moment of historical reflection right now. I love history. I actually studied it at varsity. But, uh, so these kingdoms, right, they're going to be shattered and people won't remember them anymore. They'll become a non-thing, right? Let's think of the Roman Empire. What is that to us today? A couple of rocks that you might see on an archaeological tour through the Mediterranean, maybe. An old Colosseum that's like sort of two, maybe one-third of it still standing. That's all that the Roman Empire means to us today, isn't it? How much, of a, how much of a lasting impact has the Roman Empire, how much impact does it have on your life today, the Roman Empire? When last did you think about the Roman Empire? <laughs> Asterix and Obelix. That's the, and they're not even Roman. They were, they were the Gauls, the indomitable, indomitable Gauls. So, so th- this is a profound prophecy because we, we, we now have the benefit of hindsight. That is so profoundly true. Um, what, what about all the other kingdoms? The kingdom of Greece, for example. I mean, like it's a non-thing. It's not, it's not a thing anymore. What, what about the kingdom of God? What about the kingdom of God? 2,000 years later, here we are. Can you think of how profoundly true this prophecy was? And so Daniel has this moment, and I love it. You know when Paul sometimes gets distracted when he's writing and he has a little worship party like in his, in his writing? It like, has nothing to do with what he's saying. He's just having a moment, and he's expressing it out loud. Daniel has a moment like that. And actually, this verse I'm going to read now is the one that inspired Hans and Abel to write that song. So the lyrics might sound familiar as I read it. He says, listen to this. This is David, Daniel, having a moment here, the light bulb moment. He says, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. He had a moment that Although he was a minority, an oppressed minority in the, in the powerful, intimidating king, kingdom of Babylon, he was the one that got thrown into the fire, by the way, because of his belief. He refused to bow his knee to the culture of the day and got thrown into the fire for his, for his faith. But he has this moment where he's like, actually, he had a zoom out moment where he realized, God is in control. He's the one that raises up kingdoms and deposes kings. He's the one that raises up kings and deposes kings and ultimately it's only God's kingdom that's going to last these people who are intimidating me right now they'll have their day and then their day will pass but God's kingdom will remain and I feel like God wants us to have that kind of moment this morning to say that the kingdoms of this world that are so intimidating to us right now they'll have their day in the sun and then they won't there'll be no more the only thing that will last is the kingdom of God amen I feel like the Lord wants to breathe fire into our bones this morning, a courage. Yes, we may die, but the kingdom of God won't. It'll stand long after 
we've gone. And so we're going to just flick through a few slides now, but we won't dwell here on, on some of these kingdoms. That's just a picture of the kingdom of Babylon lasted for about 66 years. Ruled by Nebuchadnezzar, it was the largest city in the world at that time. They didn't really have cities up until this point. Next one uh, was Persia. Persia is, is famous because of how, how vast and how far it stretched. It stretched all the way from Egypt on the left to India on the right. A sprawling kingdom, just very vast. Cyrus was the king of, of, of this kingdom, the Medo Persian kingdom. Cyrus was famous for letting God's people go back to Jerusalem. Remember that guy? God raised him up to release uh, the Jews back to Jerusalem. Next one in Greece. Next one uh, lasted 268 years. That's a long time. Eh? 268 years, Greece. was uh, Alexander the Great was the one that made that kingdom famous. And then the last one in the vision is Rome which lasted the longest, 539 years. Interesting in the vision, and if you go and read this vision, there's like God details little things about each of these kingdoms that are almost characteristic of these kingdoms. It's interesting, Rome is described as the iron, the iron legs. And funny, this is hundreds of years before Rome came onto the scene. eh? And, And funny enough, Rome is known for being like this iron fist that just crushes everybody. Even their military was known for being like this iron fist, that if you come against them, they just crush you. Um, and, and then the profoundest thing of all is that the rock that, get cut, that gets cut off, the kingdom of God that comes rolling in, is, is prophesied hundreds of years before to come crashing onto the scene during the kingdom of Rome. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus came onto the scene during, no, that's not Jesus. You, you're, ahead, you're ahead of me, Kev. You're ahead of me. Backtrack, backtrack to Rome. That was Hans before he got saved. But we, what a testimony. What a testimony of grace. So in this prophecy, God prophesies 604 years into the future. Isn't that crazy? What about if God had to come into this room right now and tell us about the next 604 years? Imagine. But you know what? God does know. God knows 604 years from now what will be happening. Who will be in power? Which government will be in in authority? What will be happening with his people? He knows. It's encouraging for our faith, isn't it? Sometimes we feel like tumbleweed being blown this way and that. And to some extent that's true. But God, God knows. And he raises kings and he deposes kings. And it's only his kingdom that will last. So it, in Daniel it says, In the time of those kings, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. And so this is a prophecy of Daniel. So you can imagine now, now, now you're going to go back to what the reaction of the disciples was when Jesus comes onto the scene and they recognize he's the Messiah. Can you see it kind of, it's different now. It's like, that guy, he's here now. God's, that rock, that's going to that, that's destroy all the other, that, that rock has just turned up on the scene here. 
Can you understand why they weren't just saying, oh, my sins are forgiven, I'm so grateful, although they were. They were more preoccupied with this king that just turned up onto the scene, this king that Daniel prophesied. And the interesting phrase that Daniel often used was the son of man. The son of man. That's a phrase that comes from Daniel that Jesus picked up on to talk about himself. I am the son of man. He would refer to himself as the son of man. And so when Jesus came onto the scene, it was actually a turning point in the whole history of the world. And now I'm talking about the literal history, the history you learn about in the, in the history textbooks. It was a turning point in history because God established his eternal kingdom through Jesus on the earth, which is why Jesus took so much time to talk about his kingdom. And in Matthew, you will read again, again and again, say the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, and he mentioned the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. When it gets planted, it's the smallest seed. But don't be fooled. It's a small seed when it gets planted, but don't be fooled. It'll turn into the biggest tree of all. And the birds will come and find their resting place. And that is exactly what happened. Jesus' kingdom started very small with a few ragtag men. And now it stretches across the whole globe. Millions of people would today consider themselves to be in the kingdom of God. But there's a couple of things I want to pick up about this kingdom. It's a very different kind of kingdom. I've already mentioned and I've shown you some pictures of the kind of pomp and ceremony and glory and power of these kingdoms. And then comes John the Baptist. And John the Baptist comes onto the scene to introduce Jesus. And you suddenly realize this is going to be a very different kind of kingdom. Very, very different. <laughs> that, that's, not, that's not how we introduce kings. This, guy, this is not the kind of guy you choose to introduce yourself if you're wanting to make a splash on the global scene. Do you know what I'm saying? You want somebody on a stallion, preferably with a golden trumpet, with flowing, flowing robes behind you. Do you know what I'm saying? Like if you're going to make an impact, this is not what you want to do. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and he's born in a cattle trough with poor parents in a town that no one's heard of or cares about, and they say things like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And you realize this is going to be a very different kind of kingdom. A very different kind of kingdom. And so Jesus is almost always trying to set our expectations of the, be careful, my kingdom's not like Rome and Medo-Persia and all these. My kingdom's very different. If you fall into the wrong expectations, you're going to get the completely wrong idea about the kingdom that I'm coming to set up on this earth. And so it said about John the Baptist, and this is the phrase I felt the Lord drop in my heart for this morning in Mark chapter 1, verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Interesting, he lived in the desert. He lived in the desert. John the Baptist lived in the desert. A voice of one calling. I went to that desert, by the way. It's worse than Otsuan. It's like when you drive past that desert, you say to yourself, there's nothing that can live in there. It, is like, it looks like Mars. It's like this Martian yellow landscape. You're like even snakes would struggle there. Do you know what I'm saying? It is barren, barren, barren. So he's the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Prepare the way for the Lord. He's saying, the Messiah is coming. The King is coming. Prepare your hearts to receive the King who's coming. It says about John. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, 
and had a leather belt around his waist. His food was grasshoppers and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of, of Jordan. And so why, why this guy? This was very prophetic, by the way. The way he dressed was the way that prophets dress. It wasn't just because there weren't any good clothing stores in the desert. That must have definitely been an influence. But he dressed, the way that he dressed sounds very similar to like an Isaiah or a, it's, it's prophetic. He was, a, he was a prophet, and so he dressed like a prophet. He was, Elijah, thank you, not Isaiah. It's good. Accountability, real-time, real-time accountability. It's good. And so Jesus chose a prophet to introduce him. Because his kingdom was going to be different. And I want to just say, before we rush on here, we are called to be a prophetic people that prepare the way of the Lord. Can I just provoke us a bit right now? John the Baptist was different. Are we different? Are we different? There's this tendency in our generation, even as Christians, to want to be relevant to the culture that we're in. And there is some truth in that, but we mustn't stretch it too far. We are called to be relevant, but actually we're called to be a prophetic people. A prophetic people are much more concerned about what God is saying and what He's doing in the earth right now than what people think of me. The way people think of how I dress, the way people think of how I act, the way people think of how I talk, the way people think of my hobbies, how I spend my time, how I spend my money. Do you think John the Baptist cared about any of those things? I can tell you now, he didn't care a rat's. You, you, complete, you complete that sentence. He didn't care because he was a prophet. We are a prophetic people. Does, does this resonate with you? I want to just say, we're called to be a prophetic people. Yes, we're called to be relevant, but more than that, we're called to be prophetic. A prophetic people who have our vision on something bigger than what's going on in the world right now. Does that make sense? We're called to be a prophetic people marked by holiness. Whether or not the world thinks we're trendy, that's, not, that's neither here or there. So without armies, now remember that this is a kingdom, right? It's a kingdom that's coming crashing on the scene. But Jesus, without armies, without riches, without any legislative power, set up a kingdom on this earth that has lasted for over 2,000 years. How did he do that? How did he do that? The question is incredibly important because he's still doing it. And if we want to see God's kingdom continuing to grow on this earth, we need to hold on to the fact that his kingdom comes differently. It doesn't come through power and influence and money and having charismatic leaders. Jesus says, I'm going to skip ahead now in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. It says, this is how they overcame the powers of the evil one. This is how they overcame. They overcame him through the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives, even when faced with death. For us as a people, how will we overcome? How will the kingdom come through us? Through the blood of the lamb. What does that mean? means I don't have a righteousness of my own. I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. His righteousness becomes my righteousness. Number two, 
the word of my testimony. In other words, the powerful things that Jesus has done in me. And the testimony also speaks of the testimony of the gospel. Not just what Jesus has done in me, but what Jesus has done for the world. Jesus so loved the world, he came and died on the cross so that we could be spared the judgment of God and be made a new creation. That's the testimony that we carry. That's the testimony the church has always carried, even to the point of death. That testimony has always been on the lips of God's people. And very often it was to the point of death. But there's there's something important to know about this kingdom. You can put up the next diagram. It's a bit complicated, but I'm going to explain it to you, so don't get lost in the details. One of the confusing things about the coming of Jesus' kingdom is that it was a spiritual kingdom that came in the hearts of people, but it didn't look like there was a lot going on in terms of what kingdoms normally look like. Right? There were no kings, queens, princes. There was no laws. There was no judicial system. It was a kingdom that came almost sneakily and spread from one heart to another person's heart. That was surprising for the early disciples, and it's often surprising for us. In fact, John the Baptist, the very man we were talking about, got offended by Jesus because he didn't understand the nature of the way that this kingdom was coming. In fact, he sent a messenger to Jesus and said, Are you the one to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Then he said to John, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So John was wrestling with this fact of the Messiah is here, this promised king, this deliverer of Israel. This rock has been cut off, the one that smashes all the other kingdoms, right? He's here. And here I am sitting in jail about to be killed, and I'm the one introducing Jesus. What's going on here? That's what, I mean, maybe he didn't put it that bluntly, although just John the Baptist so he possibly did put it quite bluntly. He tended to be quite blunt with what he said. But he was wrestling with the nature of the kingdom. And there's this paradox in the kingdom that Christ first came and he suffered. He preached the gospel. He announced the the coming of the kingdom, but he suffered and ultimately died. And there's this curious paradox in the kingdom. The kingdom comes first through suffering, first through endurance, first through holding on to the truth of the gospel and proclaiming it even to the point of death. And then comes resurrection and glory and triumph. That was the path that Jesus took. And so there was a surprising double fulfillment of the messianic prophecy. So here you see at the bottom the old age of sin, Satan, wrath, disease, death, weakness, flesh. Right? That characterized the old age. Then the new age came with Jesus here in the middle. The new age of God's rule, righteousness and spirit. Healing. Life, love, in Christ, new humanity, people of God. But some of the things from the old age were not defeated, like death, sickness. And so at the end there, it's Jesus' return, resurrection, the enemies defeated, God, all in all, creation restored. And then it will be a physical reign. Jesus will physically come. When he comes the second time, it's not to bring a spiritual kingdom. It's to, to reign physically on the earth. He will be a literal king. 
And so that will be the second part of the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy. But it's got serious implications for us in between the first and the second coming of Christ. In, Revela- uh, in, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 9, Paul said this about his ministry. He said, we are persecuted but not abandoned. Struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our bodies. The kingdom of God relies on the power of the Holy Spirit, even though we're weak, even though we're frail, even though we die. The kingdom of God came through Christ, comes through us by the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. As much as Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. But sure, he did try. eh? He still does. The gates of hell have come against the church and continue to come against the church. And he said, they will not prevail but it will often come at the cost of our lives. And it came at the cost of Jesus' life. And so we triumph even through death. And the resurrection power of Christ lives through us even while we are weak and frail and die and suffer the way that Jesus often did. Does that make sense? It's important to know the nature of the kingdom. And so I want to just now leave you in closing now with what does this mean for you? What does this mean for you? I feel like the Lord wants to do something in us this morning that he did for Daniel. An opening of our eyes to see that it's not just this little minority of obscure Christians who love God in my little corner of the world. It's actually a lot bigger than that. I feel like the Lord wants to say, Jesus came to be king. Yes, he came to be the savior of the world, but he came to be king. The Bible speaks about his kingdom. He rules and he reigns wherever Jesus is acknowledged and worshipped as king. And it starts with us. In my life, Jesus, you're the Lord. Lord means king. Whenever we say the word Lord, Lord Jesus, we are saying King Jesus. We proclaim his name, King Jesus, until the day he returns. Secondly, and this is maybe the most important, possibly one of the most important things I'll say this morning, The kingdom of God on earth is the most important thing going on in the world right now. That's true, but it's obscure. Because if you read the news, how often does the kingdom of God feature? You'll read about America, you'll read about Russia, you'll read about China. South Africa doesn't feature in international news except for all the wrong reasons. But the global players, and they can capture our hearts. And that seems like the biggest thing going on in the world right now. It's not. It really isn't. They will come and they will go. The kingdom of God is the most important thing going on in the world today. And so those things might grab the headlines, but for our hearts, we need to know there's something a lot bigger going on. Number three, Jesus brings us into his mission. When we encounter Jesus, we find salvation, but we also get swept into his mission. Jesus is busy bringing about his kingdom on the earth happening there, Kev? Jesus sweeps us into his mission. The early disciples immediately got caught up into the mission of Christ, which is to do what? To let God's kingdom come on this earth through me. And that's the mission that he's caught, caught us into. We are called to prepare the way for the second coming of Christ. How? By letting the God's kingdom come in me and letting God's kingdom come through me as we spread the message about this king, 
this king who is God's king. But it only comes at the expense of our lives. It's as we lay down our lives that God's kingdom comes through us. I want to say that the kingdom of God doesn't mix well with the kingdoms of this world. It didn't with Daniel. It didn't with the early disciples. And it doesn't with us. You can't hold on to the kingdom of God with one hand and the kingdom of this world with the other hand. In order for the kingdom of God to come through us, we can only have our hand on one thing. Jesus said you can't love both God and money. That was just one example of things of this world, which is a part of a different kingdom. And so for each one of us, as we pursue the things of God, as we pursue God's kingdom coming on this earth through me, there will be things in our lives that God will highlight and say, you can't have that and me. You can't hold on to that and me. Our comfort, our money, our careers, even our families, my image I've already touched on, what the world thinks of how I look, who I am, what they think of me, my reputation. We can't hold on to those things. We can't hold on to both at the same time. And the last point, number five, God uses ordinary people to introduce his kingdom into the hearts of others. Ordinary people. The more you read the scriptures, the more you realize he uses ordinary people. He uses nobodies like you and me. All he's looking for is a willing, surrendered life. He's looking for hearts that are passionately in love with Jesus. That's all he's looking for. He couldn't care less how influential we are, how clever we are, how, how educated we are. All he's looking for is a surrendered heart that loves Jesus passionately. Those who pursue holiness rather than the pleasures and the sins of this life are the ones whom he introduces his kingdom through.